that there's something in my life that if people saw and if they knew and if surely God saw that he would never be able to forgive me of this misdeed, of this wrongdoing, of this thing that I've done. You ever feel like there's something in your life that you've done that is so bad that God could never forgive it? As we've been studying uh, the seven dying words of Jesus on the cross, today we look into a sentence that speaks into that kind of a situation. For people who feel like I could never be forgiven by God, the things that I've done are so bad, whatever it might be, whatever those things might be. You know, you talk to people all the time who, who, who've done things like that. You talk to people who are in prison, who have uh, committed rape and murder and, and aborted children, all kinds of things like that. Feel like, you know what, I just can't come to God because my life is so far out there and it's so far gone that I could never be forgiven. If you have felt like that, if you feel like that, if you know people who feel like that, then the second word of Jesus from the cross speaks clearly into that situation. I want to read to uh, together from Luke chapter 23. And I think in your bulletin, it says verse 43, because that's the words of Jesus. But I want to back it up, back it up, back it up a little bit to verse 39 and kind of capture it in its context. In its context, obviously, Jesus is on the cross. He's being crucified for a crime that he did not commit, a crime that we committed. And as he takes the punishment, this is what Luke 23 <laughs> verses 39 through 43 says. This is God's word. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. This is God's word. In the great sovereignty of God, he could have orchestrated events in such a way that of all of the people that were around Jesus at the cross, there was a bunch of women, there was John, there was these soldiers, there were the people who were crucifying him, there were the religious leaders, there were crowds of people. Anybody in the crowd could have said this question, this, this statement, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus could very easily have said to any of these people who put their faith and their trust in him in that moment, today you will be with me in paradise. But why is it, why is it that not only does Jesus say, I tell you the truth, you'll be with me in paradise today, it's important to know not only who said it, why he said it, but who he said it to. Why is it that it was a criminal to whom he spoke these words? What was Jesus trying to communicate to us, to that criminal, to all who are listening, and to everybody who hears these recorded words in Scripture? What was Jesus trying to communicate to us about the nature of salvation that he came to bring and they came to offer to a dying and hurting world? The first thing that I want to point out is that it is never, we are never, you are never too lost for God. You are never too lost for God. One of the central tenets of the justice system, of our notions of justice, everywhere, anywhere you go is that the punishment has to fit the crime, right? This is how in everything we do in life, everything about equity and fairness and justice revolves around this idea that the punishment must fit the crime. If 
uh, my our daughter Manny was to um, if she refused to eat her vegetables, we wouldn't spank her, we wouldn't ground her for that, because the punishment would be too far, too great for the crime that she committed. If she were to uh, tell us a lie, then we might send her into timeout. If she were to punch one of her friends, then we might put her in timeout a little bit longer. If she were to poison the milk supply of her baby brother Elijah, then we might have to spank her. But the idea is very simple. The punishment must fit the crime. Now, there's not a lot that we know about these two criminals who are being crucified on either side of Jesus. But one thing that we do know, okay, one thing that we do know is that they are being crucified. What do we know about crucifixion? If the punishment fits the crime, okay, if the punishment fits the crime, then the punishment of crucifixion must be must tell us something about the crimes that they've committed. Because crucifixion, you, you, you've heard all kinds of things about crucifixion. It was not merely, I mean, people say, well, if we were to try and bring the cross, right? When Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. People have likened the cross to an electric chair. They've likened it to a noose. They've likened it to a lethal injection okay, or to a guillotine. Take up your guillotine and follow me. But if we think about it, there is no modern day parallel for the cross, There is no modern-day parallel for a crucifixion. Why? Because all of these things that we talked about, the the, the guillotine, the noose, the the lethal injection, the electric chair, these are all very quick and painless, almost painless death. But when it comes to crucifixion, one uh, historian named Cicero says, very rarely would anyone die before 36 hours. Okay, so you're literally hanging for 36 hours arms extended, needing to lift up yourself upon nails in order to breathe. And as liquid fluid begins to fill your lungs, you're choking yourself to death. You don't die because of blood. You die because you can't breathe. Crucifixion was not meant to be a simple death. It was meant to, to prolong suffering and torture of a person. It was reserved for the worst of criminals. Romans would never crucify their own people. It was for slaves. It was for peasants. It was for the worst kind of criminals. Most Romans would pray, I hope I would never live to see a crucifixion and to witness it with my own eyes. What was the nature of the crime that was committed by these people? We don't necessarily know, but one thing that is clear is that if the punishment indeed fits the crime, then the crime that they committed was heinous and was awful and was beyond forgiving by society. So it tells us in Luke that they were, they were criminals, right? One of the criminals, verse 39. In Mark's gospel, it tells us that they were thieves. The word that's used here tells us that they were professional thieves. They were professional crooks. They were probably some kind of thugs, assassins, who killed people for fun, who stole for their own purpose, for their own joy. And the Romans were crucifying because they thought that they would be a threat to the Roman Empire. And so as you've got these people hanging on a cross... This is the nature of the crime that they had committed. That society would look on them and say, never could we pardon such a thing. Never could we pardon such a criminal for all of the dastardly deeds that they have committed against our people and against the people in general. Because justice demands a suitable punishment for the crime that has been committed. And as these people are hanging on the cross I can't help but think of that simple idea that nobody in the eyes of Jesus are too lost for God. Are there people in your life that you think they can never 
They could never be forgiven by God or they could never come to God or God's arm couldn't save them. He could save a bunch of other people, but never these kinds of people. I remember when I was in, uh, after I graduated college, I started doing this uh, pen pal program with a prisoner through prison fellowship ministry. I forget what his name was, but he's telling me about some of the things that he did. Maximum security prison. He's hanging out with these kinds of people, thugs, murderers, people who had committed rape, people who are just so hardened by being told, by, and, and most of them, I remember, this is a separate, separate time, but a man named Billy Glass speaking to, to, to prison inmates, a thousand of them in Texas, he asked them, how many of you were told by your parents that you would end up in prison? And almost every single one of them raised their hand, said, our parents told us that one day we're going to end up in jail. Right? Hardened by life, hardened by crime, hardened by the things that had been committed against them, hardened by the things that society had said about them. Remember I was writing with this guy and it was through the Ministry of Prison Fellowship International. And I, I was reading recently about the current, found, the current president and CEO of this ministry. <laughs> he talks about how he travels to, to prisons throughout the world. And he, he, he gives basically one message, preaches to prisoners in maximum security prisons. And people have committed crimes that would just, just blow our mind away if they were to walk in the doors of our church and they would tell their story. But the one message he says is, is basically when we get to heaven, it will surprise us. There will be a lot of people that we thought would be there to whom Jesus says, many who say to me will say, Lord, Lord, and I will say back to them, I never knew you. But then he said there will be people in heaven that will completely shock us, that will completely surprise us. He said as you read through the pages of Scripture, you read about a thief on a cross who with his dying breath put his trust in Jesus Christ. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. People like him. There will be people like the Apostle Paul, who is not only an accomplice to, but constantly murdering the lives of, 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 of so many people who put their faith in Jesus Christ. It says, nowhere in Scripture do we find a greater witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul. And as he tells this story, as he preaches this message, and he says, you should see the look on some of these prisoners' faces who for the first time are hearing a message that is so scandalous that it covers over all of the things that they've done. A message for the first time of forgiveness, of hope, of restoration, of redemption. A message that they never before could have ever imagined hearing. That no Muslim, no Hindu, no Buddhist would ever tell them a story like that. A message of grace that is far greater than anything that they could have ever imagined. That you're right, what Daniel says, you are far worse off than you ever dared to imagine. But God loves them more than they could ever dare to dream. And I, I, I remember the words of the Apostle Paul as he's writing to, to Timothy, as he's writing to his beloved disciple. This is what he says. He says I th- in 1 Timothy 1, 12 uh, to, to, to 15, these powerful words, and you understand a little bit deeper when you understand what Paul went through. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me faithful, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Verse 15, here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. This is the message of the gospel. 
Here's a trustworthy saying. You could take this to the bank that will never fail you. This is why Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. And he said, of whom I am the worst. No one is too lost, too lost for God. The great uh, theologian, the, the great reformed theologian, Karl Barth, when he was a Swiss theologian writing uh, theology during the time of Hitler, during the time of the Holocaust and World War II and all of these atrocities. All of these people are being asked, if you could speak one word to Adolf Hitler in midst of the, the mass genocide that he committed against the Jews, the extermination of people just because he didn't like them, what would you say to Hitler? And people said, I would kill him. I, you know, death be on you. I would pronounce the worst punishment upon you. They came to Karl Barton. They said, what would you say to Hitler? If you, had one, if you had one moment with Hitler, what would you say? And Karl Barth looked at them and he said, Jesus Christ died for your sins. This is the scandal of grace. That Jesus Christ died for the sins of people like Hitler. People who are so far out there, so far gone, that nothing that I do could ever be pardoned. That's what we think. But the message of the thief who's been crucified next to Jesus on the cross, as Jesus speaks and pronounces forgiveness to him. Nothing that you've ever done in your life makes you too far lost for God. You've got to believe this, people of God. Some of us us are, I think that's what keeps some of us from coming to God, from believing. That that, that thing that I did with that guy all those years ago, that thing that I did to that person all those years ago, that thing that I will take to my, to my grave that no one will ever know about. Could I possibly be forgiven by God? No matter who you are, right? no matter who they are, those people that you have given up on, no matter who they are, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what religious background, no matter what sexual orientation, no matter what crime they've committed, no one is too far lost for God. This is the message, the first message of the dying thief on the cross. The second thing that we see is that it is never too late to turn to God. Let me say that again. It is not too late to turn to God. As long as you're breathing, it is not too late. On his deathbed, this thief on a cross just whispers this wish and says, hey, if you're really who you are, remember. If you're really who you say you are, remember me. And Jesus says, in his last breath, this guy is brought into the kingdom of heaven. It is never too late. There are some things in life that it is too late for. The more we live life and the more of our lives are in the rearview mirror, we begin to realize that there's certain things that we've been through in life that we can't have back. It's like Billy Joel wrote, writes this song, says, this is a time to remember because it will not last forever. These are the days to hold on to. Because the more we live life, the more we realize there are things in our past that we can't get back. There are things that we used to do that we can't do anymore. As you know, I, I was at our, We were at our last youth retreat, and up until um, a year ago, when was it? Uh, up until our summer retreat, no problem for me. No problem just staying up late, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. Three o'clock rock, just praying and, and seeking God, waking up four hours, five hours later, and just being excited and energized and ready to go. 
this past retreat, once it got about midnight, I was like Cinderella. I was like one o'clock. I was dying. I was like a zombie just walking around. And you know, if I walked up to some of these, these young people like, ah, zombie, walking dead, that's crazy. Because I was, in, I was like in a complete just daze. And I remember saying to, to, to Pastor Albert, I said, this is a young man's game. I can't do it anymore. I don't know why. Maybe I'll get it back one of these days. But I don't think, I, I think I still love Jesus. I think I still desire him. I think I still want to give my life for him. But it's this sense in which the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And I realized that something happened in the past six months and, and my life is not the same. I can't, it's too late. I can't get that back anymore. I wish I can, maybe I can. But I'm realizing that the days of my youth are no longer there. There's a, a couple weeks back when I was in Seattle, after, um, after that, that weekend of preaching, some of the guys were like, Sunday night, they're like, hey, you want to play basketball? And in my younger days, I would have jumped at the opportunity. Like, absolutely, I would love to play. Everything is done. My, my, my ministry is done. I'm ready to just hang out. But they're like, you want to play? And I was like, dude, they had to drag me out of bed in order to play. That first game I got there, I was sucking wind, so tired. I mean, it would be easy in college, eight, nine games in a row we could play, and I'd be paying for it later, but I could do it. That game, first game, first game, they didn't even get through the first game. I was calling for a stretcher. I was like, I need oxygen. Give me an IV. I'm struggling here. It was killing me. And I sat down on the sidelines. I was like, I'm done. I took my shoes off. I'm like, it's over. They said, last game. This is like an hour and a half later. Like, last game, just one more game. Just one more game. And I'll play one more game. And I was playing. And at the end of the game, it, it was okay. I think I had to get my win back. But at the end of the game, I was sitting on the bench for like 15 minutes. I was like, don't touch me. Nobody touch me. I'm about to pass out. I'm about to faint. And I need to just get home as soon as I can and just sit in a bath. It's done. I wish. I wish that I could play two, three hours like I used to. But I realize that there's some things in life, it's too late. You can't get that back. But for as many things in life as it's too late for, one of the things that it's not too late for, if you're still alive, it's not too late to come back to God. It's not too late to turn back to Him. No matter where you are, no matter how lost you are, It was Jonah who ran far, far away from God and got swallowed by a big fish. But it wasn't too late for him to repent and come back to God. And then God used him to bring about a revival amongst a wicked, wicked nation, the capital of Assyria. And when when Sarah and Abraham, when Sarah laughed at God and said, it's impossible for a woman like me, it is impossible. She laughed and she scorned God. But when she trusted God, And he turned her life around and used her to bring about, to be the carrier of the seed of the promise that would lead to the promised Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. It's not too late. And Moses, his prime years of his life, 40 to 80, lived in the wilderness, thought that my best years are gone. It's over. But starting from his 80th year, God transformed him and used him to lead a a nation of slaves into the right up into the promised land, and they saw some of the greatest miracles that the people of God had ever seen. It's not too late as long as you still have breath to come back to God. It doesn't matter what you've been through. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter the pain you've inflicted on people. No matter how far out there you are, it's never too late to come back to God. This is what the thief on the cross is telling us. It's never too late. I, I, uh, you know, I've been here for about 12 years now, 
but I'm still notoriously bad at, at getting lost. I'm terrible with directions and, and finding my way from one place to another. Um, it's really difficult. So even now, after about 12 years, I'll, sometimes I'll still call Jason or call Eugene and say, hey, hey, how do I get from my house to, um, to, to church or something like that? And, and they'll have to say, well, you, you know, that's obviously, uh, it's not that, I'm not that bad. But I'm really bad with directions. And so I have on my phone, um, I have four different GPS programs on there, just in case one of them messes up. I've got four different things on there. And the most common thing that the GPS lady says to me, two things. One, she says, recalculating because I missed a turn. Or she says, make a U-turn. Right? These are the two things that she says the most to me. And as I'm driving, imagine you're driving with me somewhere. Okay, so we're driving. I don't know where we're going. Where are we going? Let's go to a park. Say we're going to a park, right? All of us are in the, I'm driving a big bus and we're all there together. And I miss a turn. Oh my gosh, I miss a turn. And the GPS says to me, recalculating. And then it says, in half a mile, make a U-turn. So I'm driving, and then I'm, oh, this big bus, and I'm looking at all these cool things, and I miss a turn again. Oh, my gosh, I miss a turn because Justin was talking to me. Oh, no. Here, uh, let's, let's keep on going. Recalculating. In half a mile, make a U-turn. I miss it again. Oh, gosh, I stink. I'm so bad. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Uh, in 0.4 miles, make a U-turn. At what point does a GPS say, ah, oh, forget it? You're hopeless. You've gone too far. You're never going to make it to the park in time. It's going to close. You're too late. At what point will the GPS say that? Never. You know why? Because no matter how late I am and no matter how lost I am, it's never too late to turn around. No matter how lost I am, if I'm going in the wrong direction, no matter how long I've been going down this direction, it's never too late to turn around. And that's what Jesus is saying to the thief on the cross and to you and me as well. It doesn't matter how long you've been going down that road. Just because you've been going down that road for a long time doesn't mean you need to stay there. Just because you've been going down that road for years and years and years doesn't mean it's too late for you to turn around. It doesn't matter what you're involved in. It doesn't matter how difficult it might be. It's never too late to turn around. Until it's too late, obviously. You see that bumper sticker that says, many people who wait until the 11th hour end up dying at 10.30. At the same time as we hear this message that it's never too late, I don't want you to hear this message that you can live however you want to live, and then right before you die, you can put your faith in Christ because there's no guarantees. There's no guarantees that you'll want him later. There's no guarantees that you'll desire him later. There's no guarantees that you won't die in an accident coming out of here without the opportunity to make that choice. And that's why there's urgency in our hearts. It's not just for you and for me. This is for the people that we care about, for the people that we love. That there has to be this sense of urgency that even though it's not too late, we don't want them to continue going down that path further and further and further and further. The message of the cross and the message of this, I tell you the truth, today you'll be with me in paradise, is that you're never too lost and it's not too late as long as you have breath. The last thing that we see here, the last thing that we see is all the bad choices that he had made 
were redeemed by one good choice. All the bad choices that he had made were redeemed by one good choice. I know we've all made a lot of bad choices in our lives. We've done things that we regret, done things that we wish we could have back, said things that we wish we wouldn't have said, sent out emails that we wish we wouldn't have sent out, done things that we look back on and and cringe. Some of them are are relatively innocuous. Some of them are relatively simple. You know, I regret some of the things that I did growing up. I regret changing grades on my report card and lying to my parents about it. I regret stealing books from the book fair and saying that my friend bought them for me. I regret a lot of things. There's a, you know, we all probably all have relationships that we regretted being in. I remember when I was in fifth grade, I dated this girl named Nicole Stoltz. She was very pretty. Problem was she was a twin. Right? She was a twin. I told you about Nicole and her sister, Danielle. Gosh, these girls messed me up. They were identical twins. And so one day my friend Chris comes up to me and he says, hey, Nicole's, Nicole wants to go out with you. I said, what does that mean? She said, she wants you to be her boyfriend. I said, all right, that's fine. I didn't really know. I was just scared. Whatever. Just a throwaway. And so I saw this girl, Nicole, and I said, hey, what's up, Nicole? I guess we're dating now. And she said, no, 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 I'm Danielle. I'm like, oh, my bad. And she walked off. And then I saw this girl, and I thought that was Danielle. I said, what's up, Danielle? She's like, no, I'm Nicole. I'm your girlfriend, stupid. I was like, my bad. I should have never dated a twin. That's why I don't, I get, sorry, Serena, Lisa. Sorry about that. But hopefully you guys will never have that kind of a problem. But I regret that relationship that I was in. I made some bad choices. I didn't know what I was doing. Some of them, most of my bad choices today deal with the fact that I don't listen to all about certain things, that I should have taken out the trash last night instead of trying to take it out this morning and the, the truck is going and I'm running in my, <laughs> I'm running to try and get it out. And a lot of, she says, you should have put on sunblock and I didn't put on sunblock and my face is all red and, and things like that. We make bad choices all the time. I wonder if this thief on the cross ever thought about the choices that he made and looked upon them with regret. God, I wish I hadn't have done that. I wish I didn't do those things. The reality is that both of these criminals were hanging on a cross, and right before this happens, the other gospel accounts tell us that both of them were hurling insults at Jesus. Like both of them just hardened hearts, didn't care, just insulting Jesus, mocking him, making fun of him. But along the way, right up until that moment in time, these two people living parallel lives, a ton of bad choices that hurt themselves and hurt other people. But in this one moment in time, right before they die, they take two divergent paths. And in this great moment, all of the bad choices that this penitent thief made in his life were redeemed by one good choice. You see, Jesus redefines the categories of morality, redefines the categories of people. When we think about people, we typically think there's the righteous people and the unrighteous people, right? Don't we think that way? There's the good people and the bad people, the moral and the immoral. Jesus redefines these categories. He did this. Philip Yancey says in John 8, remember when there's a woman caught in adultery and these people bring, him, bring her to Jesus? And Jesus writes something on the ground, and then he says one by one, He says to them, or he says to them, if anyone is without sin, you cast the first stone in killing her. And one by one, these people began to leave. Philip Yanti says, in that moment, what Jesus is doing, and this is what he did his entire life, is he was redefining the categories of humanity. It's no longer the righteous and the unrighteous. It's those who deny their sin 
and those who acknowledge their sin. Because we are all fallen, jacked up, broken, messed up, rocked up, immoral people. The only difference is whether we acknowledge our sin or we deny our sin. That's it. That's all that matters. That's all that makes a difference. That's why we never say to people, hey, I'm better than you. That's not what Christianity is. Christianity isn't like, hey, I'm good and you're bad or I'm moral and you're not. That's an offense to to Christianity. Christianity at the heart of it is that I, I was dead, but now I'm alive. That's the only thing. I'm a beggar who found bread. And I'm telling you where you could get bread. Martin Luther, the, the great reformer, after he had experienced his conversion, kept with him a, just a, fold, a folded up napkin that he kept in his jacket to his dying day. And it said, we are all beggars. And we're all beggars. Because at no point do we graduate from the gospel to thinking that I've made it to a moral state where I could look down on other people and I can be anything but a beggar. It's not like that. We are all beggars. And in this moment, you've got Jesus Christ, the Savior in the middle, and you've got two choices. All of us have lived a life of bad choices. You've got a rejecter, and then you've got a receiver. You've got a sinner, and you've got in one moment in time, a saint. You've got someone who dies in his sin, and then you've got someone who dies to his sin. Because all of his bad choices that he'd ever made in that lifetime were redeemed by one good choice. To say, Jesus, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. That's all it took. Nobody gave him a prayer, but at the end of the day, that's all he had. And that's all it took. It's just a simple prayer saying, God, I need you. Jesus, I need you. That's all it took. And yeah, the fruit of those bad choices would remain It's not like immediately he jumped off the cross and and began to live and preach the gospel. No, he died a little while later because the consequences of his sin were there. But all of those choices were redeemed. The moment he believed, the moment he believed, these choices became redeemed. Why? Look at what Jesus says. I tell you the truth. Today you will be with me in paradise. He asks for a kingdom, a share in the kingdom. Jesus says, you will be with me in paradise. He's basically saying, look, Jesus, when you become big, when you become big time, just give me a shout out when you enter your kingdom. Jesus says, I'm not only going to give you a shout out, I'm going to give you front row seats right next to me, right courtside. He gives him far more than he could ever ask. Why? What does this mean? There's only three times in the Bible where this word paradise comes out and it talks about a place where we live forever. Remember way back in the garden, Way back in the garden, God created in the six days of creation, at the end of every day of creation, what does it say? It says God saw what he had made, and he said it is good. And so the work of God in creation, the work of God is he sees, and it's good. He sees, and it's good. Six days, he sees, and it's good. Then you've got in a garden, a veritable paradise here. God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he gives them a tree, and he says, obey me about this tree of life and you will live, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Obey me about this tree and you'll live forever. Right? Paradise forever. And what does it say when Satan tempted Eve? What does it say that Eve did? It says she saw and it was good. In the moment of sin, what sin is, is man replacing God. That's basically what sin is. It's saying, I know better than God. I will choose better for myself than God can for me. And in that moment, death entered 
when sin took the place of God because God said, obey me about this tree, and they failed, and death was brought into the world. If you fast forward to the end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2, verse 7, there's something, there's this, this great passage where it says, to him who overcomes, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life in the garden of God, which is paradise. Somehow, what was forbidden in Genesis because of sin has been opened up in Revelation because of something. And what's the gap? What's the missing piece? It's this paradise here. Why? Because in another garden, Jesus Christ knelt before the Father and said, if it is possible for another way, then let it be done. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And the Father said, tomorrow there's going to be a tree. Obey me about this tree and you will die. But through you, life will be given to many. Where the first Adam disobeyed and brought death into the world, the second Adam, Jesus Christ, obeyed and brought life into the world. See, death entered when sin took the place of God. But life entered when God took the place of sin. And how is it that we could dare to believe that we as immoral and unrighteous and lost as you and I are could possibly be given access into the family of God, can be brought into a paradise where flaming swords guard the way from the tree of life. And how is it possible? How foolish to think it's because we're good enough or because we've done anything. It's not. Simply because there was another who lived that life perfectly and took our place for us. That's the hope of every human being. It's your hope. It's my hope. It's the hope for the lost. No one is too far gone. This is the message of the cross, and it's for you, and it's for me, and it's for the world. Let's pray.